either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Monster size weekend at the movies this weekend. Big releases, big stuff, big action, big music. <laughs> We'll see how they fare. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. We are from MadWolf.com, and we'll start with the monsters. The cryptozoological agency Monarch faces off against a battery of God-sized monsters, including the mighty Godzilla, King of the Monsters. How many of these things are there? Seventeen and counting. That's messed up. We stop this Ghidorah. We stop them all. Is there another creature that might stand a chance against him? My God. Zilla. I don't know it for a fact, but this uh, Godzilla now has to set the record for the most sequels. I mean, if you go back to 1954 in the original, Mm -hmm. I think we're up into the 40s now. They're not all, as some would point out to you, in the same universe. So it's a little bit like how many Dracula movies are there. They're not in the same universe. They're different Draculas. But there's a ton. There's a million, And it's it's been rebooted and booted and and (laughs) over the years. But this one is a follow-up to the one we just had in 2014, Mm -hmm. yeah, which we thought was pretty decent. That was from Gareth Edwards, Mm -hmm. and uh, we thought that one had some decent characterizations. And, you know, the action was all right. I mean, I know some people complained you didn't see enough of Godzilla, but as we've said on many occasions with a lot of movies, less can be more. Right. Um, I think, you know, I think that some some of the characters were flat, some of the action uh, like among the human population was not but the when you did see Godzilla he looked awesome you could you could see him you could see the bad guys you could see the action the action made sense it was, it was a clear trajectory and i think that is what this one is missing yeah this one is missing a lot of things this one really came up short almost all around for us now i will say let's get the disclaimer out of the way we saw this with a bunch of for lack of a better term we'll call them monster nerds okay okay and since then i've talked to a few others and that's great if that's your thing that's great i don't mean to be derogatory about that at all kaiju goo we call Uh, them kaiju goo that's right that is that's a great term let's hashtag (laughs) that or something kaiju goo but anyway and a lot of them just flat out loved it because yeah. this one has so many monsters, first of all. It's not just Godzilla. No. It's that they're, they're everywhere, yeah. these titans. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of fighting action. Mm-hmm. I, we don't think it's presented very well, but there is a lot of that action. So if that is your thing. Well, if, also, it seemed to me that the the respect, the sound, the score had yes. for, you know, throwback classics. And I mean, it seemed to me like, first of all, it was really enjoyable. And second of all, the people who really, really knew the whole sort of kaiju universe, they right. were very, very impressed. That is true. Uh, and we don't pretend to be in that camp. I mean, we've seen a lot of the Godzilla movies, but we're not really steeped in the traditions, in the lore, in the different factions within the uh, genre. So, uh, but we did talk to a lot of those people that really, really liked it. So that's the that's the one kind of disclaimer we will say: the fact that we didn't. It's just coming from, I guess, a different a different perspective. That one that likes 
logic and and good dialogue and characters because this one I'm not even going to go in there's really no point in going into the plot it's it's nonsensical number 1 but it picks up shortly after the last one left off I think it's supposed to be I think it is supposed to be a 9 year difference because Millie Bobby Brown's character right. was a toddler and okay. is now old enough to be really the central figure so I think it was supposed to be about nine years, where in fact it was only five. Yeah. And so... Vera Farmiga's character has this invention Orca. That, that Orca that can use the kind of on the same philosophy of how whales communicate mm-hmm. with sounds, can use these different wavelengths and sounds to communicate with the Titans. Do you know what we need right now, George? What? We need Kyle Chandler to come in and explain all of this to we us. We do, because no matter how many doctorates you have in science or how high up you are on the military chain, he will tell you what to do. He will. He will explain the situation to you no matter how many people have just explained the situation. (laughs) But what he'll do is articulate it in a way that makes you finally understand the next action that has to happen. Because he's the white guy. He will mansplain. And also, somebody, not always Kyle Chandler's character, somebody will be nice enough when... Things are just crumbling and machines are exploding and breaking down. Somebody will be nice enough to say, something's wrong. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. We Uh, hadn't noticed that. You're on fire, by the way. The dialogue, there's so much dialogue. My Lord, this is heavy on dialogue. And so much of it is, is needless and nonsensical. There's so much explanation and exposition and giant leaps of logic. Okay, fine. Sometimes you just want to see monsters fight. But mm-hmm. even there, even there, I just think it, first of all, it's so dark. Yeah. And it's hard, as you pointed out with the last Godzilla movie, was it, more, it was a lot more clearly defined yes. with the monsters and what was going on. And we, the, get, we get a lot of close-ups, toothy close-ups. We do. But when it comes to, you know, the full body action sequences uh, with the different titans, and it's uh, it's Michael Doherty who did Trick or Treat, which we love, yeah. and who is from Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. So th- I don't so, I don't want to diss him. Mad love, but, but yeah, he also co-wrote. Yeah, he also co-wrote. So a lot, a lot, a lot of words. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just don't get an articulate sense of the individual bodies and the the fight trajectories. And it it's just they're just not exciting. I didn't think. And and one of the things that comes up in the story is that suddenly these titans are everywhere. They're all over the globe, okay? And they're popping up and so the scientists and the military people are, are talking about them and where where the bases are and everything. And they've mentioned a few times Skull Island. They do. Okay? They bring it up a setting, lot. Setting the stage for the next one, which is going to be Kong versus a Godzilla. But when you, for me anyway, as soon as you say Skull Island, that just brings up the movie Kong Skull Island, which was so much fun. And the visuals, the monster fights there were so great they were. that it just brings up a comparison that doesn't work well for Does this movie. Does not, no. Because one of the things that Skull Island did incredibly well was not take itself too seriously. It saw itself as a larger-than-life popcorn muncher. And, and it, man, did it hit that target well. Perfectly. It, the, the performances were great. The action was great. The soundtrack was astonishing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the whole movie was so much fun. Yep. And this movie... Dearly lax and fun. It really does. And every time they said Skull Island, I'm like, oh, yeah, remember how fun that was? I and wish how we great, were watching that right and now. how great that looked. And <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, again, maybe they want to create a, a totally different, they didn't want to go there. They didn't want that vibe. They wanted, sure. I think they really wanted to be 
respectful and in that uh, tradition of mm-hmm. these kaiju mm-hmm. movies. And you mentioned Bear Bear McCreary yeah. is the uh, composer who, yeah, does a good job in incorporating a lot of the soundtracks from the originals mm-hmm. back into this. I know that in particular thrilled our friend Mason, who's a big kaiju fan. Here is my favorite Mason quote of the evening. This pin is going to look so great on my kaiju jacket. <laughs> and, and it's an awesome jacket. It is an awesome jacket. And please don't get us wrong. We're <laughs> no, not we're not making fun. We because are not. We have the things that we are nerds about. Oh, yeah. It's just that it happens that, you know, this is not one of them. And so I, we just want to make a clear distinction that is, if you are in that camp, God bless you. And you will probably like this movie a lot more than we did. Because you're going to see a lot of, not exactly in jokes, but I mean in mentions mm-hmm. that, you know, for a casual viewer, for just a movie fan... They're not going to land. They're not going to mean anything because we are going to be so distracted by how many times Kyle Chandler explains the situation to the PhDs in the room. Yeah, but otherwise, just as the, as the casual fan and overall moviegoer, we were disappointed with King of the Monsters. Next up, we'll head to an area where at least one of us is a nerd. And this is the story of Elton John, a musical fantasy about the fantastical human story of Elton John's breakthrough years. It's called Rocket Man. I could hear the whole tune in my head. It was all there, I could see all the notes, and I just had to get it out. So how does a fat boy from nowhere get to be a soul man? You gotta kill the person you were born to be in order to become the person you want to be. I'm thinking of changing my name to Elton. But that's my name. Yeah, I know. And just don't kill yourself with drugs. So how does it feel to be a star? It's never going to last. Let's just enjoy it while we can. Maybe I should have tried to be more ordinary. You were never ordinary. I was nervous about this movie because I know how much... You were excited about it. Yeah, very excited. A huge Elton John fan from the time I was in grade school. I mean, like a lot of people, you you start out listening to, when you're a kid, you start out listening to the music your older siblings are listening yeah. to, right? And my brother had a bunch of eight-track tapes dating <laughs> d- dating myself to Elton John. And we would be in the basement, you know, putting together our models and just mm-hmm. Elton John album after Elton John mm-hmm. album. So, yeah, grown up with him, and I stayed with him through his years of some bad music. And then back to a rebound. And that's kind of what this movie does. It follows all these years. So I was excited as well um, because I wanted them to do it right. And I think they did do it right. And it's very interesting because it's going to get compared, obviously, to Bohemian Rhapsody. Rhapsody, Not just because it's a movie about English rock superstar and it came out just months after Bohemian Rhapsody. But the director, the complete director of this movie, Dexter Fletcher, is the... He was kind of the cleanup director on Bohemian Rhapsody. Right, because as you may or may not recall, Brian Singer sort of disappeared two-thirds or so of the way through filming Bohemian Rhapsody and right smack in the middle of an enormous Me Too crisis uh, that he was having. And so they needed somebody to come in. And this is an obvious choice now that you see Rocketman. Yeah, um... Now, we were not huge fans of Bohemian Rhapsody. This one, I think, is a vastly superior movie. And the vision that not only Dexter Fletcher brings to it, but the writer, Lee Hall. Now, if you don't know Lee Hall, he wrote Billy Elliot. which Starring uh, co-star Jamie Bell. Right, and then Elton John came in to write the music later for the stage play. So, And this vision for Elton John's story kind of lands somewhere in between uh, those two 
treatments. It, to me, for anybody that saw years ago, about 10 years ago or so, there was a really good uh, biopic of Bob Dylan called I'm Not There. Oh, so good. And and then you, you kind of put it between that and the the glitter bomb treatment of uh, ABBA's music in Mamma Mama Mia. Mia. And you've got where this movie lives because it's a really a fantastical treatment. Yes, it does follow his life starting from the time that he was uh, a little boy and then through his, his career's ups and downs. But it's treated in such a surrealistic, you know, flights of fancy way that everything works when they do take those creative licenses. It's totally fine. I think because the way they use his songs is more thematically appropriate than chronologically appropriate. Yes. And I think one of the reasons that that works really well, I think that tried and true rock star biopic of like, you know, innocence through superstardom, through drug addiction, through the fall. Through, yeah. We've all seen that yep. a thousand times. And so you really do. You have to find a different way to approach it. And this was such a fun way to do it. Exactly. It, it's, it's exactly right. And they do right from the beginning. I mean, it's it's narratively it's it's rooted in Elton John's first um, trip to rehab, and then he starts talking about his problems, and then it goes back and flashes back to how he came up and got into music and uh, and started a, in piano, and then meeting Bernie Taupin, of course, who's mm-hmm. played by Jamie Bell. Yep, yep. Set his career on a different trajectory, and Elton is played by Taron Egerton. So good, so, and he is such so a, just a charming cutie pie. He is, and he's not only doing the the acting, but as you probably know now, he's doing the singing. Right. That was one interesting thing when I learned that. Well, okay, you're going to have an Elton John movie and not have Elton John singing, but again, it totally works because other characters sing as well. Yeah, sing the Elton John mm-hmm. songs, and a little well, bit like Tommy. Yeah. You know, in the film, Tommy, it's not like the soundtrack where it's all the who. It's character singing, which, mm-hmm. of course, Elton John sings in Tommy. So it's it's funny to me because it does blend a lot of these different things that come together beautifully. Yeah, they do. And it's 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 rated R, number one, um, which which means you're going to get a little more honesty. Now, Elton John had a lot to do with this this movie. So you always wonder, OK, if the man himself is involved, how much is he going to how many punches is he going to pull? Sure. And I'm sure there are some, but it does feel more honest. They really do. It, it feels more honest about his his life, his sexuality, yep. his tantrums mm-hmm. and things like that. And the course that his uh, career has gone on, which is obviously included astounding success. And yeah, the, the musical sequences, they they have so much pizzazz and style to them. I mean, one of my favorites is when he's having a big party at his house. And of course, everyone's partying and just because they want to be hangers on and he's not having a good time at all. And he just does a half-hearted attempt to kill himself and throws himself in the pool. And then he floats down. And in one of these fantasy sequences, he ends up at the bottom of the pool being serenaded by a younger version of himself playing piano down Mm -hmm. there. And then that very quickly morphs into everybody dragging him out of the pool, and before you know it, he's on stage at Dodger Stadium. So without having any lines of dialogue, to me that communicated that age-old cliche of nobody caring about the person just as long as you can perform. Yeah. It it showed that through Mm -hmm. the music and through these great sequences. And I think Dexter Fletcher and, of course, the writer, Lee Hall, do a great job of doing that. We have, you're right, we've seen all of this before. How can we see it in a different way and incorporate all these great songs into it? And I I think it it does a great job of that. Also, I want to give props to um, Bryce Dallas Howard. Who, I'll be honest, has never really impressed me that much. Now she she uh, poses. I she, think a she lot. does a really good job playing Elton John's mother, and of mm-hmm. course, a lot of his problems, his his search for acceptance uh, through his music, are rooted in his problems with a an uninterested father and a uh, kind of an adversarial mother. 
uh, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, and she impressed me. And yeah, and the, the relationship between Bernie Taupin and Elton John is central to this because he is constantly, Elton is constantly searching for acceptance and love, and he, he had it. He had it this whole time. Not sexual love, no. but he had it in this, in this partner, mm-hmm. and that is a, a real central relationship, I think, that plays out well in the movie. And it, it goes all the way up until pretty much that he gets out of rehab, which had been in the, in the 90s or mm-hmm. so. Uh, and uh, again, like you said, the the songs are not chronologically correct. I mean, he didn't when he was a knickers clad schoolboy break out the bitches back on his, on his living room rug. But yeah, it's a fun scene. Or when uh, when some drunk at the bar puts the, the, his, their beer on his piano and he's a little kid just playing uh, some songs, says, "You better get that off because I'm going to knock it off." And then he goes into Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, <laughs> and the next thing you know, we're all in the street dancing. I mean, that's what happens here, yeah. and uh, I think it just works so well. Mm-hmm. And yes, I. Totally admit that I'm right. I'm the the, the very core audience yes, of this, you, are. you know, as an Elton John fan. But uh, it'd be hard, even if you're a casual fan, it would be hard to dismiss the music mm-hmm. uh, as you know as good as it is, and you realize just decades, decades of indelible music. I mean, I I think he still has on on the the list of most solo hit songs, he's second only to Elvis. Yeah. I mean, they're everywhere, yeah. song after song yeah. after song, that even if they're not your favorite, you can probably mark some sort of moment in your life by one of his songs. And uh, he's got a, a an interesting story that uh, continues today, and I think uh, when you're looking for one of these, like you say, you know, rise, drugs, fall, uh, kind of behind-the-music type uh, stories that we've seen a million times, to see it in this way yeah. really makes it fresh well, again. But here's the other thing that I really I really commend this film for doing. It's R-rated, which mm-hmm. is going to seriously diminish its potential audience, mm-hmm. but it needed to be. It did. That was one of the biggest problems with Bohemian Rhapsody, is no way you tell Freddie Mercury's story PG-13. He was not a PG-13 exactly. man. Which is, which is Yeah, which is sort of ironic, because as, as much of a surrealistic nature that this film has it still ends up honest. being more honest exactly and, and more- the, the other thing that i think that that this movie needs uh applause for it's the first major studio release to include a gay male sex scene mm-hmm. and it's it's st- stunning to me with as many girl on girl sex scenes as we've seen and certainly as many heterosexual sex yes. scenes as we have seen in the history of cinema that this is the first stu- studio film to have gay male sex scene good for you that's right and it's it's not graphic no no but no, it, no but it is it is though it is one and it counts and you're right it's amazing it's taken this long but how are you good that's what so many people said about the the queen movie i'm like it's so sanitized yeah. and this one even though it doesn't get graphic is not i mean his sexuality is dealt with pretty early on mm-hmm. And uh, it's one of the things that does. It feels more honest about it. And uh, when you have these sorts of of takes on these stories that we've seen before, and we'll probably see again, uh, it gives you hope that these sort of filmmakers can find a way to do it. And and the first one that comes to mind is David Bowie. I mean, we keep hearing about a David Bowie movie. And here's another guy. If any, like like a Bob Dylan. You know, Bowie has had so many different images. If anybody deserves this kind of treatment, it's him. So I think... When they find, and you know the casting for that. It's got to <laughs> be Tilda. It's got to be Tilda. <laughs> so I hope when uh, they do finally get around to a, a Bowie movie, it takes a nod. It takes a bit of inspiration from this movie because sure. this shows how it can be done right and and so entertaining, so entertaining. Absolutely. Uh, just really, really uh, recommend Rocket Man.
One more major release coming out this week. This is one we had cautious hopes for because we like the scary movies. It's a lonely woman befriending a group of teenagers deciding to let them party at her house. Come on. It's Ma. There's my girl. This never happened, okay? Thanks again for doing this, ma'am. You guys want to party like rock stars? Follow me. Let's get drunk! The bar is open. What do you think? We don't know this chick. It ain't much, but it's all you. Cool basement. You're free to do whatever you want down here, but nobody go upstairs. This is so sick. Welcome to Ma's. There's something off about Ma. Seriously? She's harmless. What the hell? Yeah, we've been seeing the trailers for this for a while. And Octavia Spencer is is always good. Heck, she's an Oscar winner. So she's always good. And the chance to let her just kind of go nuts and get, get scary and get threatening was one that uh, I was looking forward to. Unfortunately, it doesn't really pan out, despite not only Octavia, despite a really solid cast. Oh, it's crazy. There are two Oscar winners in this film. So besides Octavia Spencer, also Allison Janney, a nominee, Juliette Lewis. You've yeah. also got Luke Evans yeah. in the film. And honestly, the, uh, the set of youngsters, of teens, um, not all of them are stellar, but most of them are quite good. And that is led by uh, Diana Silvers, who is just in Booksmart. She plays Hope. By the way, in yeah, Booksmart. she does. That's right. <laughs> the really tall, mean girl. Aww. <laughs> anyway, um, and uh, but here's this movie has so many problems. So Scotty Landis is the name of the screenwriter, and he basically put together a somewhat by the numbers kind of a film with a a somewhat novel opening that that kind of devolves. Now here's yeah, the thing. Yeah, but if you've seen even five horror movies, you're gonna know where it's going. The thing about this, though, I would be confident in saying when he wrote this film, he did not envision an African-American in the lead. And obviously, if Octavia Spencer wants to be the lead in your mid-budget horror film, you scream yes. Oh, yeah. The problem is the film really required a revision once that happened because for a number of reasons. But so what you have is a combination of two common horror tropes. You have the lonely, aging woman who is necessarily scary from back in the witch trial days, right? It's like, what what purpose does she serve humanity? She's clearly scary. That's Ca- a really common trope in her. in misery. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Greta, just, uh, just last year, Greta. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you also have uh, the outsider horror, because this has flashbacks to high school, so you've got your Carrie White, your outsider horror. And, and as much as the film Carrie is absolutely a masterpiece, that particular storyline, horror likes it too much, where the outsider is put upon and, you know, is tormented and has their moment in the sun. But in the end, for the horror film to end, status quo has to be reestablished and she has to be put in her place. So if you combine these two these two elements, you you really are really risking the idea of having a profoundly sexist film. And when the only African-American woman in the film is that character, you're you're in double jeopardy there. There's a lot, a lot of problems going on right Especially there. Especially when you look at the previous films of the director Tate Taylor, because he he, he leans in this direction even when he, he works with uh, Octavia Spencer, which he did, of course, on The Help, and that's where she won her, yep. her Oscar. Oscar. Now, he was also the director of Get On Up, mm-hmm. which um, I liked a lot, lot better. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's it's curious, especially, like you just said, you bring in the fact that no one maybe realized this when they decided to cast her, which, again, which is totally understandable oh, because yeah. you want she's, her. Well, she, yeah, she's the best thing happening in but this film. Then, and and her, her characterization is, is great. It's yeah. messy and wonderful. But then you maybe have to look at the entire thing again. Um, 
and and do some reworks. Do yes. some do so, some rewrites. So first of all, the the protagonist should have been an African American. Uh, that would have been the first big correction that needed to be made because as it is, what you have is your your beautiful, smart, your final girl type, uh, white girl, saying basically the whole time, wait a minute, this the only black lady in town is clearly sinister. I mean, basically what it's saying is angry black woman equals villain, which you just cannot have. And then the other thing that happens when you go to the flashback of her of her high school situation. Uh, she's ostracized, and these horrible things happen to her. But in no time does anybody is is the race element ever, ever, ever once in this film brought up. Well, right. not only is she apparently a loser, she's the only black student in the high school. No way that has nothing to do with the ostracism. So you just spend the whole time going, "It's such an elephant in the room." <laughs> it's right. like, "Oh dear lord!" I mean, um, but yeah, Tay Taylor, I am not a fan. And he seems pathologically bent on telling stories that are not his own. Um, and I don't. And that's that's one of the problems with this film. Uh, it's written by a white man and it's directed by a white man. But it tells the story of an African-American woman. And I just think that we've seen too many of those. It's time to stop it. Yeah. And uh, as strictly from a horror movie standpoint. Really, it gets its R because of language. Yeah. There's very little blood. There's one scene that might make you a little squeamish. Um it's not very inventive in terms of horror. It's certainly not very inventive in terms of, terms of storyline. What entertainment value it has, and it does have some, comes from these just so much better than the material performances. Yeah, yeah, and that's Allison a... Janney is a hoot. <laughs> she always is. Yeah, a couple of Oscar winners. Boy, I know in this cast. So uh, good for them for getting that cast. But pretty disappointed. Definitely the major recommendation this week is Rocket Man. As we go to the lobby. Speaking of horror. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Yeah, it's all horror all day this all week in the lobby. All all day, starting with Climax. Latest from uh, our buddy, Gaspar Noe. <laughs> <laughs> I say that. He's everybody's buddy. Yeah, He's he seems a like a fun guy. Touchy-feely kind of filmmaker. Oh, my God. Um, if you know anything about his films, you, you, you probably know what you're in for. If you don't, well, <laughs> uh, enjoy his dance party, because that's what this is. <laughs> it starts out as a dance party, and then it gets crazy, uh, and it gets bloody and, well, different types of bodily fluids. Oh, yeah. Nightmarish, yeah, because once it takes the turn it does, it does what he likes to do so often is just batter your senses. Yeah. Just He's batter, just unrelenting. batter your senses. But if you're a fan, and I am, uh, I like this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely like Climax. Also one, a quiet little movie that we actually got a chance to talk to the filmmakers when they were here in Columbus that we like called Starfish is out this week. It's a post-apocalyptic sort of rumination on grief. It's it's lovely. It's very, very interesting. There are some great, really well-articulated monsters in the movie, but mainly it relies on the central performance, which was absolutely brilliant. I enjoyed it a great deal. Yeah, and on DVD this week is Lords of Chaos. Rory Culkin stars in the I Can't Believe It's Never Been Made Before story about the uh, black metal band Mayhem. Mm-hmm. Norwegian black metal. That's right. Yeah. Uh, probably the first. <laughs> and uh, and w- it is full-on nuts what happened 
in honesty with this band. The approach that the story takes is is a little bit bland, considering, and the uh, the accents are weirdly all over the place. But it isn't a bad movie, and especially if you're a fan of that band or of that genre of music, I think it's worth checking out. And we just mentioned this a few minutes ago, uh, Greta is out this week on home video. And this one stars another crazy lady performance and a good one by Isabel Huppert as uh, an older lady who kind of sucks in this young girl into her web and then starts terrorizing her. The young girl played by Chloe Moretz, who returns her handbag after finding it one day on the subway. And then they're friends, and then they're not. And sort of like we were just saying um, with... um, Ma, Ma, the best thing about this is Isabel Huppert's just unhinged performance. She's so great. I mean, she just toys with the audience the same way that she is toying with this girl. She is so great. The movie is not, no, it but doesn't, she's wonderful. There are so many times where it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I know a lot of movies require that you suspend disbelief, and this is certainly one, but <laughs> it's it's just too much. It oh, was yeah. too much for me. Uh, but it's worth it's worth watching her because as it always is, yeah. she's she's so good. Yeah. But uh, as a movie on the whole, not so much. Next week we're looking forward to well, are we? The next... <laughs> <laughs> we are the uh, latest X Men, and this one surprised me because of so many of the cast that's back. I thought everybody of the main stars was done with this franchise, but apparently not. A lot of them are back for X Men: Dark Phoenix. Also won a comedy that's getting a lot of good Yeah, looking buzz. forward to this one. Uh, Late Night. Mm-hmm. That is Emma Thompson and Mindy Kaling. Mindy Kaling wrote it. Yeah. So uh, looking forward to that. And mm, Secret Life of Pets 2. Secret Life of Pets 2, yeah. yeah. Wasn't blown away by the Secret Life yeah. of Pets, but we will find out. So that's next week. In the meantime, let us know what you thought about anything uh, going on this week, especially if you're, what do we call them, K- Kaiju Gugu? Yeah. If you're a member there, <laughs> defend yourself, and we're happy to hear, to hear your, uh, your take. On uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters or Rocket Man or Ma, let us know. Easy to keep the conversation going as always. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Mad Wolf, M A D D W O L F. Also on Facebook and Instagram, it's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website for written reviews and our other horror movie only podcast called Fright Club. You can find that all at madwolf.com. So get in touch if you can. And as always, we appreciate you listening to The Screening Room. And don't forget, please, wherever it is that you do listen to this podcast, to subscribe, rate, and review. Love you so much for doing that. So until next week, she is Hope Mad. He's George Wolf. And this is The Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.